Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. Uh, Will Eagle is my show. I am doing it at Darwin, Darwin Festival. It is over so- half sold out already. Uh, still a sort of month and a half to go. But um, if you want to come and see the show in Darwin, I would recommend buying tickets uh, sooner rather than later because I'm, it looks like it's going to sell out, which is great. Thank you, everyone, for supporting it. And if you want to support this podcast, coming and seeing me live is a great way to do it. But I'm not doing much live stuff this year. So you can contribute to our Patreon, which is uh, patreon.com slash TOFOP, T-O-F-O-P, uh, which helps us keep the lights on here and uh, pay everybody who... Uh, edits the podcast and helps put it together. Um, uh, obviously, Podcast Mike, who uh, produces the podcast and helps me book the guests and helps me record episodes and uh, does all sorts of an amazing uh, job. And uh, Mike Hal, of course, um, our American uh, producer who cuts it all together and makes it all work for us. So um, uh, those guys, as well as James Fosdark, who does all the original artwork, um, all need to get paid. Um, I myself don't make any money out of this podcast, uh, but... Uh, I do like to pay all the people who help me put it together. So uh, your money that contributes to that, patreon.com slash tofop, um, is a good place to do that. At some stage, we might set up an individual uh, philosophy Patreon uh, for people who just want to support the podcast, but have not done that at this stage. Maybe around the 100th episode, we might try to uh, put up something individually uh, if you want to support it that way. Um, or you can just uh, rate it, review it, pass it around, share it with your friends. Uh, today's episode, Schwatter, Wayne Schwoss. Wayne Schwoss was a magnificent um, Australian rules player in the AFL, VFL, uh, VFL, AFL. I guess it was probably AFL um, by by that point, but um, a really wonderful footballer. But today uh, I'm talking to him about Pucker Up and mental health. Now his organisation, Pucker Up, has to do with men's mental health and we'll hear all about that. Um, but we speak a lot about mental health in general and uh, suicide and a whole bunch of things uh, that are in that area. So if they are topics that you have difficulty with or that um, I at least want to give you a heads up that that's where the conversation goes today. Uh, if you are somebody who needs some help uh, in that situation, then there are plenty of organizations, Pucker Up, Beyond Blue, Lifeline, and those services are also available for those who are friends or family of those who are going through these sort of struggles. And perhaps, you know, you have a loved one or a friend who might be in a dark place and you don't know exactly what to do. Uh, those organizations also give a great deal of information about um, how you can help, how you can support your friends, how you can contact your friends, how you can reach out to them. So we speak a lot about that today. Uh, we recorded this conversation six or seven weeks ago. Uh, and the reason I mention that is that there's been a couple of things that have happened since. One is that Schwatter has been uh, giving a lot of uh, personal testimony uh, to some inquiries around mental health and the, the way that it's being treated. And uh, there's been some reporting of that in the newspaper. And some of the stories that he tells today have also been sort of broadly um, covered in some of the media. And I just wanted to mention that we recorded this before that. So that's the reason none of that's referenced. And the other thing that isn't referenced on this but has happened in the meantime is that Triple M, uh, the radio network, uh, did an amazing thing um, called No Talk Day where they took all the announcers off air uh, but also all the advertising um, and uh, all the promos, all the news. And they had a No Talk Day and the idea behind that was that uh, we would shut up so that people could talk to each other. And um, it was an amazingly uh, wonderful thing. Uh, Mike, Fix, Pat, Mike Fitzpatrick, Fitzy, uh, who was the boss there at Triple M, was a huge. Um, it was a. It was you know it, it, he was a, the guy who 
was really behind the idea, but it was a from top to bottom down initiative throughout the the network, and it was something that I think everybody involved in it can be immensely proud of. And the just anecdotally, the amount of stories that I heard from people um, around them taking the opportunity around that day to have that conversation uh, with friends or to share their own stories um, uh, has been immensely um, uh, moving. I, th- I guess is the the best way to put it. Uh, the short the stories have been shared with me personally have been incredibly moving and incredibly intimate, and um, I'm very proud that Triple M did that. Uh, both Schwatter and I have associations with Triple M, and uh, we obviously don't talk about that in this either because uh, we recorded this uh, before that was happening. So uh, they're the kind of two major things that have happened since that there might just be some people who were like, oh, well, why didn't you talk about that in this podcast? The reason we didn't talk about it was uh, this was recorded before that. But I think this chat today is one of my favorite episodes of Philosophy. Uh, it was a great pleasure to get to know Schwader and um, to get his uh, thoughts and opinions and support and love. And yeah, it's, Anyway, I, I'll let you listen. Um, I don't need to tell you what it's about, but uh, I did just want to give that heads up at the top about some of the subject matter that is covered in today's podcast. All right. Um, I hope you enjoy it. I hope uh, this podcast is helpful to some people who also, you know, need to know that they're not alone. Uh, I hope you enjoy it and uh, I'll talk to you again soon. Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. Now, um, I'm really, really excited to have our guest here today because he's a man that I admired firstly uh, in his sporting career, but I've admired uh, equally as much, if not more, for the work that he's done post his sporting career uh, in a space that we'll talk about. I'll I'll let him talk about it. I'm not going to do it all up the top. This is not how it works. It's very unprofessional if I say all the shit and then I don't let the guest talk. So uh, firstly, I start by asking every guest this question. Who are you? Uh, my name is Wayne Swass. Now, Schwatter, if you don't mind me, mm. can I go with please, that? Please, please. Are you one of those people that everybody immediately just goes with Schwatter? Yeah, and when they say Wayne, I feel like I'm either in trouble <laughs> or I've done something wrong. <laughs> I don't like it. Don't like it. Uh, this is our first time meeting, I yeah, believe. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Will. But I've been a great admirer of yours and our... Our worlds uh, have intersected a lot. We were just having a chat in the corridor that you played in a in a premiership at North Melbourne with my my first cousin and Stewie. and Stewie and I grew up playing football in you know teams together. We're the same age and you know played alongside each other and so you know I, I we followed his career very mm. closely, obviously. And then uh, you work very regularly with my great mates from high school, Mark Howard. So uh, small world. I've been following you. From afar, never had the opportunity to meet you, but I'm so glad that you've come to do this today because uh, there are so many things about your life that I find fascinating. Uh, but the premise of this podcast is that I ask people whether they have a philosophy. Mm. Do you have a, a life philosophy or a work philosophy or you know, something that you tend to to live by or use? Yeah, I do. And it's both life and it's professional. And it's summed up with the name of the organization that I founded and now I'm the CEO of, Pucker Up. And the definition, it's actually a Hindi word. It took me about four months to find a word that I felt. It had to be really important for two reasons. And this is a long-winded answer, Will, but... We've it, got time, it, ne- <laughs> <laughs> it needed to be very personal and real for me as an individual. 
but it also needed to represent what we're trying to empower and inspire people to do. And I stumbled across the word pucker. It's a Hindi word and it means authentic and genuine. And why it's personal for me is I was neither of those two things for 12 years and it nearly cost me my life. So they're daily values that I consistently try to live in everything that I do as a person. I need to be open and honest about my well-being because when I am, I'm in control of what I choose to do and I want to manage my well-being. So that's something that I do every day. And the other reason is that we want to educate, inspire and empower other people through Pucker Up just to be authentic and genuine because when we do that, we don't do what I did for a long time and invest in the, fa- the facade or line that you're healthy and well when you're not. When we are open and honest, we put ourselves in the driver's chair of our health and our well-being. And that's, and that's my philosophy. So being open and honest, though, is an easy thing to say, but an incredibly difficult thing to, to do. Taking to me live. 25 years. It's, it's something that I, you know, wrestle with every single day. You know, often, you know, people feel like I'm being incredibly honest, but I know the amount of things that I keep to myself, particularly when there are bad things happening in your life. Mm. And I imagine, well, I'll speak from my own personal perspective and see if there's anything you relate to here, which is that, um, oh, by the way, we've got a professional in, Schwader just coughs and knew how to use the cough button. That was, that was really impressive because if I'd coughed, I just would have leaned back and coughed into the corner. But you actually knew what you were doing. You knew which one was the cough button. I have you been used in these it. studios before. Very, very yeah, good. Thanks, Will. Very impressed, Thank mate. Thank you. That's so, about where it starts and stops with me in the studio, though. One ahead of me, mate. That's why Mike has to be here to record this. I don't know how to turn it on or off. Uh, so, um, I often, this is something I've struggled with a lot in the last year and a half. It's been a really tough, tough time in my life. The, the, the toughest 18 months that I've had, you know, in my life and for a range of reasons, which is normally the case. It hasn't been one thing in particular. It's been too many things in a row. And, uh, my life to the outside world, I imagine seems great. You know, I have a great job and, you know, I, you know, earn good money and I get to kind of do my passion for a living. So sometimes it feels to me at at the very least, it it feels like I don't have the right to complain about things or that that if I was to share with people, you know, how tough I'm actually finding life at the moment, that it would seem like I was complaining or whinging and that people would be like, what have you got to complain about? Is that something that you relate to? Yeah, I do. I mean, there's a, there's a fair bit in what you've just, what you've just shared then. And, and, um, if I can, what I'd like to do is unpack that a little bit for sure, because if I put it into a, a, an AFL media perspective, which I have a role with Howie, as you said, every Sunday and sometimes Saturdays commentating on games of footy. And I, th- I hope that you, this, this resonates with you, but we see, through the window that people let us look through. And what I mean by that is I go to a game of football on the weekend. I've got two this weekend. I watch a game of football. And we see two hours of an individual's life played out on a football field. What we don't see is the remaining 166 hours in their life, whether it be training, it be privately, personally, whatever it might be. And when you just articulated what you articulate is that we have this perception or we make assumptions based on what we see of a person. So you have a public profile, you've got a role in the media and we, we have this attitude, we form an assumption on what Will Anderson must be like, but that's only one component of your entire life. 
And I don't agree, irrespective of your role. Yes, you have a high-profile role. You might be well-paid. Fantastic. You have just as much right as anybody, anybody else in the community, to put your hand up when you're doing it tough. It's got, it shouldn't have anything to do with the fact that you're high-profile and you might be well-paid. That's got nothing to do with it. What it has everything to do with is that irrespective of our role and our experiences, sometimes life is tough. We should have the ability and the opportunity to put our hand up, and if we're comfortable and we feel that that's helpful for us, share that with people, whether that's publicly in front of a microphone or it's privately. So I would encourage you that you have just as much right as Michael, myself, or anybody who's listening to this podcast to talk about it, because talking is really important for us. Connection is important, and our ability to talk to people that we trust ask for help, seek help in order to navigate our way through a difficult period of our life is really important. And everybody has that entitlement and right. What other factors do you find tend to be in, in people's way from expressing these things? So oh, that's, that's, there's so much in this, Will. I mean, I'm, I'm on a 25-year ongoing journey. I'm, I'm no different. All I've chosen to do, I, I've lived with mental health conditions and I manage my well-being now. But over the 25-year journey, I've, I've come to certain positions in my life where it's almost this awakening. And, and, and I'm not trying to preach to anybody to answer this question. All I'm trying to do is encourage people to think about and challenge the narrative that we get subjected to. And for a moment, if I can focus on men in particular, I've been talking publicly all over Australia for the last 15 years, and I ask the same questions. I ask men in the audience when I present if they can remember a time before the age of 10 where they hurt themselves, they cried, they felt no shame, no guilt, no embarrassment, they ran to mum or dad or an influential adult because they knew that they'd get the care and the comfort that they needed. And we would go to them and we didn't feel weak, we didn't feel soft, we didn't think that we were a sook, we just behaved the way that we're created. We might have got a Band-Aid on the elbow, cleaned up, kiss on the head, pat on the bum and a hug and told that we'd be okay. Every time I ask these questions, every male in the audience puts their hand up to go, yes, I remember a time. I then ask, who's carried that way of behaving as they've got older? Less than 1%. 15 years of asking these questions. Less than 1% of men say, yeah, I've, I've continued to behave in the way that I did when I was a kid. And that, for me, is one of the greatest challenges and one of the biggest motivations for why I created Pucker Up and the work that we're doing. We're not focused on male or female. We're focused on human beings. But to answer your question, there is a narrative that is preventing men in particular from being open and honest, from being vulnerable, for showing insecurities, and for having the capacity to be emotional and in particular, the ability to cry. Because we've grown up. The reason why I believe men stop behaving the way that they are born is because of the expectation of others or society. That's not how a man behaves. We lose on average six men a day to suicide. We lose eight people a day. I'm not disrespecting the other two um, people that lose their lives, but we every day in Australia, on average, we lose six men. Why are we losing men? Because men think it's weak to ask for help, or they think it's weak to think weak to be vulnerable. It's weak to be emotional. And if I am vulnerable and emotional, people will judge me. And for a male, respect is so important to our identity. So the narrative that we've been sold, which I was part of, does not serve us, in my opinion. 
We need to create environments and spaces for men and women, boys and girls, to be emotionally connected and expressive. And until we do that, we can't realistically expect to have the numbers of suicide and people attempting to end their lives to go down. So there used to be a theory that um, you didn't talk about suicide, you know, that that part of it was, you know, and, and you know, I'll, I'll put a warning at the top of this podcast to let people know that we are, but if you don't mind, I'd, I'd like to talk about it. Because mm. um, those statistics are compelling in themselves. Uh but in the last year, I, I've lost two people I know in my life to suicide, um, and both of them in s- circumstances and situations where externally, if you looked at their life, you would not have understood that that was where they were at and that was a decision that they were going to make. And I've seen the, you know, I've been to the the funerals of someone who's taken their own life and experience what that's like and and experience you know the grief and the the grief unlike any other funeral that you've ever been to because people are you know half angry half you know like i mean these are people who've left behind you know small children you know loved ones you know all these sort of things and it's been like it's it, it doesn't go away and i think about it every every day and what I also started finding in this time, because that's not the only thing that's been going on in my life that's been difficult, but because that was part of it, I started noticing that my thoughts were darker as well. And I, I think I would be over-exaggerating to say that I ever myself felt was suicidal, but I, I just want to be as honest as I possibly can about this so that people can, you know, if there's someone out there listening, they go, well, it's not just me. There were certainly a bunch of days where I was not thinking about killing myself, but there were a bunch of days where I went to bed thinking if I didn't wake up tomorrow, that would be easier. Mm. That would be better. Mm. You know, I didn't necessarily want to take it into my own hands, but the thought was that my life and other people's lives would be better if I was not around was was in my mind more often than it ever had been in my life. And you know that's not true though, don't you? Well, I do, and like I probably was aware enough also to go and get some help and you know talk to somebody professionally about that, and you know, and I also am a person that it wasn't ever present in my mind, mm. but for some people, it is ever present in their mind. Do you know? Um, I want to tell you something. I want to be completely honest with mm. you. Um, I there was some, there was a tweet that you shared a while ago. I think it might have been off the back of. I don't know if you spoke specifically about someone who had taken their life, but the tweet grabbed my attention and I was, I don't know you well. It's the first time we've really sat down and had a discussion, but I was worried about you just by the language that you were using in, in a particular tweet. It resonated with me greatly. And I feel I'm not an expert, but I feel I have an ability to recognize when people are either in pain or they're hurting. And I did, I did remember at the time, there was a couple of times where I can honestly say that I felt like directly messaging you just to check in and see if you were okay, even though we don't know each other well. Because again, irrespective of what job we do, what, what profile we have, if we have one at all, and how much money we earn, it's got nothing to do with it. Money gives us choice, Will. The more we have, the more choice we have. The less we have, the less choice we have. That's it. doesn't equate to happiness. Because you've got a big profile and you're getting well paid. doesn't mean that you're not going through shit and you're not being negatively affected. Um, and I think it's really encouraging that you recognize that it was important for you to go and get professional help. 
in the same way as we go and get professional help from a GP when we're not feeling well physically, I also understand the devastation that is left behind for the people that have to somehow find a way to move forward with life when they've lost someone to this particular issue. I, I have been in the camp of, I believe we have an obligation and a responsibility to talk about the elephant in the country. And that is the elephant of suicide. There are other people, and I respect that, and we can have a difference of opinion, that believe by talking about it is going to compel other people to do that. I don't believe that that's the case, provided we do it in a constructive, considered, empathetic and respectful manner. The fact of the matter is that we lost 3,128 people to this issue in 2017. 65,500 people attempted the same outcome in 2017. Men are three times more likely to achieve the outcome, but there's three times as many women attempting the same outcome. It's not male and female. It's human beings. And the devastation and destruction this issue causes people. You felt it. You've lived it. You've acknowledged that there is not a day that goes by that you don't think about those people. And I hear a, I don't want this to be interpreted as uh, being critical, but the thing that I hear a lot, uh, there's two things that I hear a lot, and you've said one of them. You know, if you look from the outside in, you would never have suspected. That's the window that we glimpse in to a person's life. That's the window that they want us to see. But there's a whole host of other windows that they are doing everything they can to keep private. And I believe because of fear. What will people think? Will they judge me? Will they think negatively of me? Will I lose that respect or those relationships? This is why pucker is a really important word because we're all guilty. And I was as guilty of this and I don't do it. I don't do it very often now, but there are still times where I do it. And that is when we're getting ready in the morning to leave our house. And by the time we've hopped in the car, the mask is on and the cape's on. Because it's a protective mechanism and we do that out of fear. What will people think? How will they judge me? What will they say about me if they knew all the shit that's going on in my life? Shit's going on in everyone's life. What we're trying to do is say, stop pretending anymore. If people choose to judge you negatively because you've got stuff going on in your life which is real and relevant and it's having a negative impact, let them judge you. People are going to judge you anyway. You've got no control over it. But free yourself up of that fear and perhaps shame because you've got some things going on in your life, give yourself the best opportunity of working through that and getting through it. So you, what we've seen a lot in professional sport recently is that people have had, uh, you know, genuine acknowledgements of the, you know, the struggles they have with their mental health. And it seems like, you know, in the, well, in the AFL world, which is the world that, you know, we are most surrounded Mm. by, it, it feels to me, you know, I'm a, a Western Bulldogs fan, a, a Footscray fan, and anybody who knows the Western Bulldogs knows that Tom Boyd was our, you know, premiership hero in 2016. We would not have won that grand final or the week before without Tom Boyd. He had the world at his feet. Mm. And uh, then he, I thought, you know, well, came out last season, talked about the struggles he'd had with his mental health. Um, I don't know Tom well, but I know Tom to, you know, have a chat to and, you know, if I run into him at the, you know, the pub or whatever. And I saw him over the summer and, and I knew that he was struggling with his physical health. But he, you know, of course, as anyone who's had physical health problems knows, it can also be a massive contributor to your to your mental health, lack of sleep and pain and yep. all these things that can be massive contributors. So at a very young age, he's retired from the AFL and he's going to go and do something else with his life. And I think, 
it's great. But when you were playing football, you felt like that was not something that you could talk about publicly at the time, was it? No, absolutely not. And I never did because a couple of reasons. I don't believe, I didn't believe, I didn't think and I didn't feel that my industry, my club, my coaches and my teammates were ready. And I wasn't. So the interesting thing is, Will, with the benefit of a lot of reflection and being on this journey of self-discovery, as difficult as it was, I've learned a lot about myself. And I talk about this when I present, and that is I was trained to be the best athlete that I possibly could. And what I mean by that, when I came into the North Melbourne Football Club through my entire 14 and a half year career with North Melbourne and the Sydney Swans, I was indoctrinated into an environment that gave me the best opportunity to be the best football player. And what that really meant was I was educated, conditioned, and I learnt the skills to cope with stress in one area of my life. Elite level football is really stressful. And I, I developed a toolbox which allowed me to play at the elite level, achieve some reasonable individual and team successes whilst at the same time hiding depression, anxiety, and obsessive compulsive disorder from everybody bar four people. So I had a capacity to deal with stress on a football field. I had no capacity, skill set, or emotional intelligence to be able to think, feel, and communicate what I was living with. So I wasn't ready. I didn't have the capacity to talk to people because I've, I've grown up talking about safe topics. Work, sport, kids, family, life. But talk about me. How do I do that? And how do I have a conversation like we are now to a man? Men don't do that. That's the narrative that I've been conditioned with. I'm not blaming anybody, but it's, I think it's encouraging to start to see that the industry is shifting. We're changing. We've got Tom Boyd, which is sad in one respect from an athletic point of view, but I'm really proud of him as a person to make that decision. He's a premiership player, will always be a premiership player. But for a 23-year-old man young boy to realize that the demands of my my job outweighs or the pressure of meeting those obligations. I can't do that. I've lost that passion. I've lost that commitment. I've lost that enthusiasm. I believe he's made the most important personal decision for him. Yeah, he's walked away from money, but what's money worth to you if you're not here to enjoy that? So I hope that he has the ability now to enjoy whatever he does. Alex Fasolo, Travis Cloak, Tom Boyd, Buddy Franklin. We're starting to see players begin to acknowledge and clubs support them that I'm dealing with mental health conditions. So that's an indication that as an industry, we're starting to mature. But I think we're missing a massive opportunity, Will, within the game of AFL football. Look at what AFL, look at the role that the AFL have played amongst other sporting codes and how we've educated our community around racial vilification. It's not acceptable. We shift, we've fundamentally shifted the pendulum of what was once abhorrent and acceptable to no. We don't tolerate that and we know the reasons why. We haven't completely removed it, but we've shifted community expectations and attitudes and perceptions through education. If we begin to really embrace the mental health topic and issue within our industry, not only can we help our players, our coaches, our administrators who are going through stressful situations... Think about more broadly of the impact we can have with regards to the millions of people that come to our games every year who are privately living with these conditions. If we change attitudes and perceptions, we give those people a sense of connection and a sense of hope, which means that we prevent people from ending their lives. Do you think that part of the problem with people's understanding of mental health is that you can't see it? Yes, but 
that's a component of it. Ignorance is a component of it, which is totally unacceptable. A lack of understanding or awareness or education is a component of it. And the reality is that one of the things that drives us every day is this issue of stigma. And stigma really is discrimination. I had an interesting conversation uh, with uh, a man on Twitter recently, and, and, and his position was, well, why? it was off the back of Tom Boy's retirement, why would clubs recruit players who have mental health conditions and they knew they had those conditions before they recruited them? My immediate response would have been, no, nah, it's bullshit, I'm going to whack him. But what I chose to do was I started asking questions. And how I framed the conversation was, do you know of any people that manage asthma and diabetes that work? Yeah, sure, sure. Do they do a good job? Fantastic job. Okay. So how is that different? If I'm an employer, am I not going to employ Will Anderson because I know that he's got asthma? No, I'm not. I'm going to create the opportunity. He manages it. People all over the country manage it. We don't discriminate or apply stigma to them but we do apply stigma and discrimination to people with mental health conditions. These are legitimate medical conditions. And there are many players and many people in high-profile positions that do their job amazingly well whilst managing mental health conditions. We need to eliminate and remove stigma and discrimination because it's a preventative barrier stopping people getting help. And unfortunately, in my opinion, it's a potentially contributing factor why we lose eight people a day. Why do you... And this is like, I mean, you know, I don't expect you to have all the answers to these questions, but uh, what do you think? Um, there are some people perhaps who just almost refuse to accept that mental health is an issue and that, you know, people should just harden up or be happy, you know, go for a walk and get over it, you know, all these Tried sort all of those things. things. Yeah. But then I think there's a, another group who just don't quite, who half understand, you know, they they kind they kind of understand. They're just like, well, if you just spend less time on your phone and you get off social media, then that'll fix up your mental health. And it might be a contributing factor yep. to what is going on, you know, these other things. But how do we get that group who are willing to have the open minds or, or are halfway there, how do we get them to fully understand what it is? Yeah, I like the way that you've described it because I've always, say, always had the view that there are three groups. There's the group that absolutely get it, either lived experience or they a loved one. So they've seen it. They've lived it. They know it's real. And the group that you've, the second group that you described is the group that I think have a foot on both sides of the fence. Yeah. I, I, yeah. It's an issue. It's a, it's an issue. I acknowledge that, but I'm not a hundred percent sure. And then you've got the other group to your point that, you know, go on, carry on, get on with it, toughen up, snap your fingers, pull your socks up. Tell me, trust me, if it was that easy, I would have done it. It doesn't work. I think it's possible we can get both of those sec the second and the third group to begin to understand and why I believe in that absolutely. I got a message from a Western Bulldogs trainer recently. They played in WA and on the plane black, back, you may or may not know this, but Virgin, to their credit, took our Pucker Up documentary for three months and it's on all domestic inbound and outbound flights and all inbound international flights. And we're really grateful that Virgin made that commitment to the program. I got a message from a trainer at the Western Bulldogs recently who was coming back from Perth and watched the documentary. He was in the third group. Up until watching the documentary, I was one of these people that said, it's bullshit, get on with it, toughen up, come on. It, it does. This is rubbish. He invested 52 minutes on that flight to watch the documentary. And his message, and it's not about me, it's about what we do. But he, he, he made a decision 
to message me. And I think it takes a level of courage to put your hand up and say, up until this, I was one of the ignorant ones. And he thanked me for the documentary because the documentary allowed him to start to think about his attitudes and perceptions. And the way that he finished his message was beautiful. I now know that I need to educate myself better about these issues so that I can support the people that I care about who are going through these. Thank you very much. It proves there are people that are ignorant to the impact of these issues. And I'm not being critical of them. It is what it is. But I would also suggest to anybody that is in that group, I can promise you, you know of someone that you love, either directly or indirectly, that's going through these conditions. When we educate ourselves, we put ourselves in a better position to be able to support the people we care about. I think sometimes for people who are around those who are, you know, suffering, yeah, things like depression and anxiety in particular, like if somebody's got a broken leg or if somebody's like, my head hurts, you know, often you'll be like, hey, my head hurts. Can you get me an aspirin? Right. Whereas sometimes if you've got a disease like depression or anxiety, the disease actually pushes people away. Hmm. So if if you're around and you want to help and you're like, how can I help you? Often the disease is actually going, you can't help me go away or I'll be mean to you so that you will go away because I feel so unloved or unvalued or, you know, not worthy of being able to. So I think for people who are around those who are going through these things, often the person who's going through it is almost least capable of letting you know how you can best help them. I was talking, we were talking the other day um, uh, to Julia Gillard, who's, you know, become the uh, chair, chairperson yep. of Beyond Blue. Yep. And, uh, and I was saying that one of the things that I never knew about was that Lifeline will um, answer questions from loved ones or as well. So if there is someone in your life who is going through something and you, because you're not a trained professional, you mm-hmm. might just be the person who loves them the most and wants to help someone who's in this you know, terribly dark place, that you can ring Lifeline and that the counsellor on the other end will help you, you know, go, well, maybe you could try this or maybe this is, you know, the. Yeah. and I just, that had never even occurred to me really? that, that you can get that you can get help. Now, you always sort of think those lines are for the person who is going through the thing, not the people who are around them. The number of times over the last 15 years that I have suggested and encouraged support people to ring Lifeline, Sane, Beyond Blue, Men's Line, Kids Line, as a support person, pick the phone up, ring the counsellor, explain the situation and ask them for strategies. I couldn't tell you the number of times that I've suggested that. And I think, again, that's... These conditions don't impact the person only. They permeate their way through the family environment, the work environment, the friends, networks, all of those type of things. And importantly, for anyone who is a support person of somebody going through these conditions, it is absolutely critical that you prioritize your own mental health and well-being so that that gives you the capacity and the energy to support the person. But sometimes we focus on the individual's need that we're trying to help, not realizing that our mental health is starting to taper off or be negatively impacted. So I would encourage anyone who's in that position of supporting somebody, pick the phone up and ask questions. Be inquisitive about this. How do I look after my health? But also, what can I do to support the other person? Uh, It feels amazing to me that you've you've decided to dedicate, you know, a, an enormous part of your life to this because, you know, having been through it yourself, you know, and I want to talk to you about the work you personally do, but um, 
I imagine, like that story you've told me about the the trainer on the plane, that you hear a lot of people's stories. And they might be very positive stories like that, but also I imagine that people who've been at their darkest, you know, share those moments with you as well. And that's an, an enormous weight for you to take on in your life as someone who also has to, you know, do their own work, you know, on their own, you know, mental health and own world. So tell me about why you decided to take this on and actually do this. It's because it's much bigger than me. Um, I was, I had a sales role with Telstra for five years and I was on a, a good salary I was getting well rewarded financially and I was quite successful within the business unit. But so what happened was in 2006, I launched the Sunrise Foundation, which was a not-for-profit, which delivered preventative education programs to schools here in Melbourne for 5,000 secondary school kids, year 10 students, and was really successful. But unfortunately, we got to the fifth year and um, we couldn't grow our capacity because the, the demands and requests for our program from other schools was overwhelming. Great position to be in. But we couldn't use the philanthropic money to go and employ five new facilitators. So it was quite restrictive and onerous. We were running four programs. We couldn't expand and grow as quickly to meet the needs. So we made a difficult decision to close the organisation down. I then went in and got a sales role with Telstra, spent five years there, and continued to advocate publicly, deliver presentations, all that sort of stuff. But in my last year of working with Telstra, I had this nagging calling. And as successful as I was with Telstra, what it really came down to was there have been so many times, Will, where I have been overwhelmed and negatively impacted because of the heaviness of the topic that I was wanting to try and be a part of and champion change for. And But every time I said to my wife, I said, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. The universe brought something in that I looked at and I've got, I've got to do something. And at that that time, I started to really question, what's my purpose in life? Why am I here? What is my role? Where do I fit in the whole scheme of this opportunity on earth? And I really started to question and challenge myself about what is my purpose? I used to think it was to play footy. That's a chapter written a long time ago. That's not why I'm here. And through that process, I came to the realization, and I I shared this with my former boss, who was a great supporter of what I did. I sat down with him one day and I said, you've been a wonderful supporter for me personally. You've given me a great opportunity from a career perspective. But I need to be honest with you. Every time I walk in and I sell a piece of technology to a business, I'm helping the business do business better. But I know when I walk out of the business that I've not positively impacted a single person's life in that business. I have a calling that I need to commit myself to, and it's not with you. I um, have had a wonderful mentor of mine. He was the chairman of the Sunrise Foundation. He's also now the chairman of Pucker Up. I went and did a crazy cycling challenge out at Mount Macedon about three years ago. So you ride repetitively up and down a hill or a mountain to ride to the same uh, height of Mount Everest, 8,842 metres. took me 24 hours. I did it for three reasons, but one of the reasons I did it for was to shine a light on suicide and the impact of those lives that we've lost because they deserve to be more than a statistic in a document. That's a life. That's a story. That's a journey. That's a person. So I have this unbridled passion and enthusiasm to really 
immerse myself in this challenge and this issue. Because as I said before, Will, it's much bigger than me. My experiences, whilst I didn't realise it, have prepared me for the work that I now do. It was tough and it was bloody hard and it was sometimes life-threatening. But it prepared me for the work that I do. It gave me the experiences to develop a level of empathy and compassion for complete strangers understanding the struggles and impacts that they're going through. So I did this crazy bike challenge and my chairman came out, um, my mentor at this stage, he came out. He's been incredibly successful in business and he's, he's done well financially. And he came out at the start, I did the challenge and he, he shared the story with me. He woke up, I rode it from 12 o'clock during the day, rode through the night and finished at 12 o'clock on the Sunday. And he said he woke up at three o'clock on the Sunday morning and his wife said, what are you doing? And he said, how can I lie here in the comfort of my bed and my home knowing what he's doing for himself and other people out there? He came back out and he's arguably the best reader of people that I've ever met. He knows when to talk and he knows when to sit back. And we had about, he came back out and it was just on daybreak on the Sunday morning and we had about 15 or 20 people. And it's amazing what you remember, but this this man was just, he, he just had a happy knack of knowing when to come up and to say something to me. And he was in the support car following me at one stage and I was really starting to struggle. It was the biggest emotional, physical black hole I've ever been in, ever. And I've played a lot of footy. And um, he read me incredibly well, and I was, I was getting a bit emotional and teary, and he pulled the car up beside. He called me over to the window. Am I allowed to swear on this? Yeah. And he called me over on my own, and he said, why the fuck are you doing what you're doing? And I said, for other people. Then stop feeling fucking sorry for, sorry for yourself. Finish the job you fucking started. <laughs> and it was this slap in the face that I needed, right? Yeah. Uh, focused again. I'm feeling, this is about, no, this is not about me. This is much bigger than me. So it motivated me. I'm getting goosebumps. Got up the top, did another couple of repeats. Then he got back on his bike. And then he, can't, I just saw, he just brought his, his wheel in behind me and sat next to me and didn't talk to me for a little bit. And all these other lunatics are carrying on talking stupid stories and all this sort of stuff. And he just rode up beside me. He goes, I love you. I really love you. And I admire you for what you're doing. And that's all he said and drifted back. And I got, I got emotional about that. And then we finished, we hugged, it was really emotional, we achieved the goal, we gave other people that had been impacted and lost, lost people to suicide an opportunity to go, you know what, there are people out there that care and feel our pain and they're willing to do something so that the lives that we've lost aren't forgotten about. Two days later, pardon me, calls me up, he goes, let's have a coffee. And we sat down and he goes, how much of an impact do you think you could have if you were full-time back into this? I go, a lot more than what I am currently now. And he goes, well, I want to give you that opportunity. I want to invest, invest into Pucker Up with some capital. And I resisted for five weeks because I, I value his friendship than his money. I'm, I know he's successful. I've always known that. But I've never asked him for that because his relationship with me is the most important thing. This is a man that I tell I love regularly. This is a man that I've cried with. I've, 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 I hug him every time I see him because that's authentic. I don't care whether people judge me by being a male who's connected physically, emotionally, and spiritually. I tell the men in my life what they mean to me, including my chairman. We had five weeks of back and forth 
And in the end, I said, are you, are you sure that you want to do this? And he goes, absolutely, because my vision is to give people, create the opportunities and the environments for people to chase their dreams and change the world. Because of this man, he invested into Pucker Up and he's given me the opportunity and the privilege to now do the work that I do. And the reason why I'm so passionate about this, Will, when I played footy, it was a selfish pursuit. I may have given people who barrack for my clubs two hours of enjoyment or a couple of days of disappointment, but I didn't change a life and I didn't save it. Why have I committed myself physically, emotionally, professionally and spiritually to this issue? Because there is nothing else that I can do that gives me the opportunity every day to have a positive impact on a person's life or save their life. This is my purpose. I know now why I'm here. Football just given me the vehicle to do the work that I do. And it's something much bigger than me. I, 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 I know I have to commit myself to this because the opportunity to change a life or save a life is real. And last Friday, I delivered a presentation out at Oakley to a men's lunch. And during the presentation, I had my phone on the lectern and I was engaging with the group. And I, I finished my presentation, turned my phone on. There was two direct messages. And it was from a man in the audience. And his first message was, I'm here and I want you to know you've changed me. And the second message that followed up was, no, you've saved me. I didn't realize that I'd spoken to this guy 18 months ago on uh, Instagram privately. And he was thinking about ending his life. Had a young son. Marriage had gone to shit. And he said, what do I do? I'm struggling to hang on. And what I, what I rightly or wrongly I said, every child needs their dad. And no matter what you're going through, what, what, what will you give your son if you follow through with that decision? Is a lifetime of pain and hurt. You're not, you're not helping him and you're not helping yourself. That boy needs his dad. And I had the pleasure of meeting him last Friday. There was a lot of tears. There was hugs. There was laughter. I met his father and I met his new partner. And I shared this on Instagram that night with the permission of the man without mentioning his name. The work that we do has gifted a man his life. It's given a son the opportunity to have his dad. It's given his father the opportunity to have his son. And it's given his partner the opportunity to have her partner in their lives. That's why we do what we do. It's life-changing. And I don't know anything else that I could do that has the same opportunity or impact and we have those stories shared regular every week. We get stories from that. That's why we do what we do, Will, because everyone matters. How did you get from rock bottom, you know, in your life to like you are honestly? I, I could not be enjoy like enjoying. Is that am I allowed to say enjoying yeah, of about course. this? I know this these is, are real conversations. Are, you know, this is. I, I I just think this is. So wonderful, everything that you're saying, the, the great passion that you have for it. I think you're doing – I hesitated a bit when I was doing the introduction because I, I – I, what I wanted to say was that I admire even more what you're doing now than I did your sporting career. And I almost choked on it because I didn't want it to sound insulting. No, but that but, resonates with me more because the work I do now, Will, means more to me than my career. So how did you get from – you know, a person – I remember you – like, you know, posting and part of your, I, I will, okay, I'm going to tell you something, uh, you know, a, a bit more personal um, and I hope you're okay with it. I don't, certainly don't mean to make you feel uncomfortable, but, but part of the reason that I've started sharing a little bit more of this 
and I'm still a fair way from sharing, you know, you know, all of it, but is that idea that I think that keeping the facade up is da- is not good for anybody else either. It's not good for yourself, but it's also not good for anybody else there. If you're, if you're not telling people that, you know, despite everything else, you know, things are really hard, then those people out there who are going through things that are really hard think that they are alone, mm. think that they're the only person doing it. So, uh, and, and, and a lot of me deciding to do that was inspired by seeing you sharing your stories. Thank you. And I remember one thing in particular. Now, I can't remember when it was particularly, but I remember you posting a picture, I think it was, of maybe you even standing on a premiership dais and you know it, it was with a caption something along the lines of this is what suicidal looks like or something do you remember yeah, it this was 2017 it's a picture of me with my premiership medal on the dais at the end of the 96 grand final yeah i remember it so can you take me to that moment yeah absolutely uh, 94 and a half thousand people at the mcg we just defeated the sydney swans premiership team premiership club premiership player And the reason why I very deliberately, I made a decision, Will, about three and a half years ago that I was going to put it all out there because by doing that, and that's a choice that I make, and it may not be a choice that you or anybody else wants to make, share what you're comfortable sharing. But I made a decision, if I'm legitimately going to commit to this issue, then I'm all in. And that means warts and all, because when I share what I share, It's my story and I'm in control of the narrative. The story and the experience doesn't control me. I'm in control of what I choose to share, which means that it's my life, it's my journey, it's my story. That's empowering. But the other reason that I chose to share it was for two reasons. The the things that I've shared publicly on various social media platforms that have resonated the most with people are the ones where I'm being brutally honest about my own journey. What that says to me is, that's resonating with so many people in the broader community that is hopefully allowing them to understand it's not just them. They're not the only one. Even a high-profile, successful, well-paid football player can live with these conditions. So can the richest man in Australia, by the way, James Packer, who can't work because of his mental health challenges. So it's got nothing to do with material possessions or, or money or wealth or anything like that. And by sharing my own journey, it's giving people hope and a sense of connection that, you know what, you can still achieve. You can get healthy and you can get well. So they're the reasons why I chose to share that particular post. And I continue to do that. And the reason why I shared that grand final post was I want people to understand one really important thing. When we walk past a homeless man or woman in the street, don't ignorantly assume that they've got mental health conditions. He or she may, but it's not just the homeless person. It can be an AFL football player who's just become a premiership player. It can be the richest man in Australia. It can be any one of us. And I think we need to stop assuming, stop making judgments, and just understand that these conditions don't discriminate. They can affect any one of us. And the question that I used to get asked the most when I first started talking publicly was, why, why, why would you be depressed? You're playing footy, you're getting well paid, you're doing something very, very few people get the opportunity to do, and that's all right. And the reason why it used to annoy me was that people made assumptions. Well-paid, high-profiled, playing footy. Must have a great life. No, you're making that assumption based on what you see on a weekend. On that particular day, I was three years into a suicidal battle. I was diagnosed on the 9th of August 1993. My wife and doctor knew. No one knew. By the time I became a premiership player on the 26th of September 1996, I was hiding depression, anxiety, and obsessive-compulsive disorder from 
everybody bar my wife and my doctor. And I put my hands up and smiled. I was looking for my wife after taking my premiership medal from Jack Dyer because I wanted to end my life. I was broken, spiritually lost, emotionally bankrupt, self-medicating with alcohol and drugs, marijuana and everything else I could get my hands on, not to glorify it, but I was desperate. I didn't know how to cope with it, so I self-medicated to numb the pain. And I was exhausted. I was tired, Will. I had nothing else to give. Yeah, it was a great moment. It's a fantastic moment in my life, something I'm incredibly proud of, and the memories always come floating back around grand final day. But at that moment, I was done. I couldn't keep I couldn't keep living like this because the energy to pretend and hide that you're healthy and well, I had nothing to give to my footy career. The positive in all of this is that I live with three concurrent mental health conditions and I was incredibly suicidal, yet I was able to perform at the highest level. What does that say about the capacity of the human spirit? Did you ever worry that if you took if you treated one the other would go away. That perhaps, you know, the fact that you were so hard on yourself, you know, inside your own head, that, you know, that the the OCD, that the depression, that the anxiety, that those things were contributing factors to you being an athlete at the highest level. Did you ever worry about um, that? I worried about a lot of things. The things that I think helped me be a successful football player were also the things that were contributing to the conditions. Mm. It was the push and pull of life. Um, so I, a very black and white view of the world. I was a perfectionist. I was obsessive, all of those things. And they helped drive me to become a good football player. If I didn't have those experiences, could have I been, could I have been a better football player? Yeah, potentially. I believe so because I was diagnosed after playing my 97th game of football. I played the remaining 185 games of my career. Hiding, lying and pretending to everybody bar four people, three were professionals, they were treating me out of necessity, and my wife, I invested my energy into the lie. So I achieved some good achievements, but what else could have been possible for me had I have put my hand up when I needed to or should have, as opposed to waiting six years after being diagnosed, age of 29, go to Sydney, about to win a third best and fairest, and I had an epiphany during a training session. And it's so clear because, Adam, we were in the round weekend, so if you look at the SCG on TV, it's the right-hand end. Adam Goods was at the top of the goal square. I was behind him. We were doing a full-length end-of-the-ground drill, and Jude Bolton was behind me picking up a football. That's the clarity I have from this moment. And at that moment, I realised, alcoholic, pothead, taking other drugs, haven't missed a game of football, haven't missed a training session, and I've done nothing to help myself. At that moment, six years after diagnosis, I made a decision I wish I'd made six years earlier. I finished training, walked in, went into the rooms. Tom Cross, who's the head doctor at Sydney now, I sat down with him. I locked the door because I didn't want anyone coming in because of fear. And I cried. I burst out crying. And I said, Tom, I'm sick. And this is what I've been living with. Can you help me? He turned to me and said, yes, and we will. That's all I ever wanted to hear. But I never gave myself permission to do that because I lived in fear and I swam with shame for such a long time, Will, and I felt that personally, weak, soft, flawed, fake, no good, broken, pathetic, all of that. that was my narrative. This is why messaging is really important for us. What messages are we sending ourselves and what messages are we sending other people? So that's what I fought with every day. And then I also had the fear and the, the guilt and the shame about what would other people think if they knew. 
But I took a chance that day because Tom was a doctor, so he's bound by confidentiality. And I asked him for help. And it was the greatest decision that I ever made because from that moment, I invested four and a half years with a wonderful lady psychiatrist in Sydney who helped me understand the conditions, who helped me understand how are they negatively impacting my life, and more importantly, helped me develop the compassion and capacity for me to start accepting and liking myself and then developing the tools which ultimately allowed me to take control of my life back. So the, how does how does that work in a practical sense? What what changes are you... I mean, I don't want to, you know, I mean, obviously some of that's just stuff that is your journey and, you know, the, the reason you're talking to a professional about that is because there's a lot of work that needs to be done there and I'm sure that there were some pretty amazingly full-on times mm. in that. Um, you've... You've been one person, you live with a lie for long enough that the lie becomes, you know, the clothes you put on every day and then you decide I'm, I'm going to take off these clothes and I'm, you know, I'm going to expose myself, you know, like I'm here I am. Uh, so can do you remember what that feeling is like? Maybe even that, just say that first six weeks to six months, like as you're really like, you know, starting to change your life. Can you remember what that was like? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's still very clear to me. So I waited six years to get help, ask for help. I then invested another four and a half years. So by the end of that four and a half year period, my wife, my doctor, who was the head doctor at North Melbourne, Harry Angley, I'm here and I do the work and I'm the person in part that I am today because of those people. They kept me alive, my wife and my doctor, and that's why I love him as much as my dad. Tom Cross, who I asked for help from, and then Lisa Lampy, who was the psychologist who helped me. That was ten and a half years after diagnosis. I hadn't talked to my dad, my family, my friends, my teammates, and my coaches, no one. Still hadn't talked to them. And what happened was, it was October of 2005, so I'd done a tremendous amount of work. But I came home, I was retired, I was working in the media, we were living in a suburb of uh, Melbourne, Newport, our twin daughters had just been born, and I walked in one day and Rachel, my wife, said, how are you? And I said, I'm really tired. She goes, what do you mean? I said, I'm tired of this fucking lie. She goes, okay, tell me more about this. I said, I've been lying for 12 years to everybody that I'm happy and I'm healthy and I'm, it's a bullshit. The energy that I've invested into this bullshit facade has drained me. I'm not happy. Because I'm not being true to myself. I'm not telling the key people in my life what I've dealt with. She turned to me and she goes, very matter-of-factly, she goes, good, I've been waiting for this day. I said, what, is that? what does that mean? She goes, we're going to have a meeting with our family. I said, no, we're not. Grand finals, state of origin games, big finals, I've played in all of those. I've never been scareder than going into this meeting with my family. So my dad, who's been the most influential male figure in my life, and I love him dearly, I never told him because of fear. And a belief, a foolish belief, and I never challenged it, that he'd lose respect and I'd lose him. So up until this moment, well, I invested all of my effort into protecting the things that were more important. The thoughts, the behaviours, and the reactions of the people that I cared about. Because I believed, I assumed that if they knew they'd lose respect, they wouldn't want to be a part of my life and I'd lose them. That was so important to who I was then. And we spent two and a half hours, and I was convinced that my dad would leave. We had uh, his partner, a couple of aunties, a couple of their adult kids, and two of my non-footballing mates in there. And for the first time in 12 and a half years, it was 
an honest conversation. I cried a lot. Everyone cried a lot. It was very raw. It was confronting sometimes because I was really open about what I was feeling and what I'd gone through. And everything that I was convinced that I would lose stayed in the room. I spent 12 years of my life foolishly believing and never testing and never asking what would people say and do if they knew what I was going through. I believed that I would lose those people because of what I thought that they would do. They sat in the chair, we hugged, we cried, and they stayed. And then six months later, and that was the first time in 12 years that I said to my wife after, I said, I feel like this weight's off my shoulders. That was really nice, just to be honest, because up until that moment, every time I was in the company of those people, I lied, pretended, drank more, smoked more, all of that shit. And then six months later, I decided to um, do a two-page article with a, a great friend now, Mike Sheen. It was an expose, because I believed that if I shared my story, it would help other people. That, that article went to print on the 1st of March 2006. The day before the 28th of February, I made six phone calls to six men. And you may know some of these. Anthony Stevens, Glenn Archer, Anthony Rock and Ian Fairley and two other non-footballing mates. I rang them because I believed that they deserved to hear it from me as opposed to read it in the paper. The, time, the number, thousands of times I was in the company of these men who I love unconditionally, then as players and now as, as mates, and we don't see each other often, but I genuinely love them. On the verge of crying, on the verge of breaking down, on the verge of showing vulnerability and being insecure, I would grab another beer or grab another bong. Why? Fear. If these blokes see me like this, they'll lose respect and I'll lose those friendships. Those friendships meant the world to me. I protected them. But what I did was I never gave these men an opportunity to understand what I lived through and with, and I never gave them the opportunity to make informed decisions about what they would like to do or not want to do. I made it for them to protect the friendships. So I spent about two hours ringing all of these guys, and they said two things in their own words which were very similar. One, mate, how are you? Is everything okay? And what can I do to help? You know, that's the only thing I ever wanted to hear from them, but I never believed that they'd say that. And the second thing, and two of them said this with a fair bit of anger in their voice, why the fuck didn't you tell me? I'm your mate. I'm really pissed off and disappointed that you didn't trust me enough that you could share that with me. At that moment, I learnt what real friendship meant. That if we don't, like you've said, if we don't tell the key people in our network what we're going through, how can they make informed decisions about how would they like to support us? So by giving people an insight into what I live with, empowered them to go, well, I choose to stay with you and support you and love you and help you, or I choose to do something differently. I've lost three relationships since going public. Well, that's a small price to pay. I don't have any animosity or resentment to those people. That's their choice. But if someone wants to judge me negatively because I've lived with and I manage well-being, so be it. That's your choice. But I'm not going to tolerate it. So I, that is just – I resonate with that so much because I think that – so often we have this idea in our head that if people know who we're, what we're really like, that we that we're unlovable. Hmm. You know what? What if people knew, you know, what I'm really like? Yep. Then my friends wouldn't be my friends, and my family wouldn't love me anymore, and and all these sort of things. And what it ends up resulting in, and I'm glad you said that thing about your friends being angry because I think it's I think it's right, and I think it's a relevant thing to say. Because if your story had been, they were all great and they said, you know, how are you, mate? And, you know, 
Because I think we are stealing from our friends by not trusting that they will be there for us or love us. But you're also stealing from yourself. Yes. Now, I understand that. I think we all understand we're stealing from ourselves. But I think that we also are stealing from them. Because what we're saying is, I don't trust that you're the sort of person that cares enough about me if I'm flawed. I don't trust that you're the sort of mate that loves me despite my flaws or because of my flaws or wants to be there to help me through my flaws. I think you're the sort of mate who will only like me if I'm always perfect company or I'm always a great time. And that is actually, you're robbing them of a little bit as well. Um, From my point of view, I think that when you don't give your friends the opportunity to help you, you are also setting up a space where if they are going through something, they don't feel like if you're always trying to make things perfect or not saying, hey, I'm flawed or I'm going through this really rough time, it also makes it harder for that friend when they're going through those things because you create an environment where you've said through your actions that this isn't a space in which our friendship operates. Hmm. Look, I agree with all of that. I think I can confidently say we're all flawed. There's no such thing as perfect because life's imperfect. We all have issues and challenges. We go through great successes and great failures. The thing that I would encourage you, and I'll I'll challenge you on this, Will, and and I admire your candor with regards to some of the things that you've gone through and your decision to share whatever you're comfortable sharing. And and, and the encouragement and the, the challenge is this. Human beings operate at a really superficial level, and that's not to be critical. How are you, Will? Yeah, I'm good. Yeah, what's going on? Blah, blah, blah. Small talk. And, and I was a guilty. I was as guilty as this as anybody. I would ask, if we were friends or teammates, I'd ask you how you were going, but I was not actively listening to your answer. I was thinking about the next question I was going to answer, uh, the review that I've got to do, the coach that I've got to talk to. So I'm not invested into that moment and that conversation. When you're prepared to be honest with those that you trust and that you care about and they care about you. One of the really valuable, important things that comes from that is you develop a much deeper, richer, authentic friendship because you're showing more of yourself. And again, I talk about the window all the time. I made a presentation to um, a large accounting firm in Sydney uh, on Wednesday and I talked about the window that we look through and we think we're making assumptions. But when you front up, and you start to be authentic and you start to, wherever you feel comfortable, show more of yourself in an authentic and genuine way. When you're prepared to share with someone that you're going through a difficult challenge, but through that sharing, you're trusting them, you're showing that I trust you enough that I'm prepared to share that with you. What you're doing is really important. It's twofold. One, you're giving them the permission to talk to you when they've got something they need to talk to. That takes it from a superficial level to a much deeper, richer, authentic level. You're developing trust. You're developing capacity. You're giving yourself the opportunity of sharing what it is that is bothering you. That's important because it's taking out the way that we think about that emotionally and we might be ruminating on that. We're sharing that with someone. The ability of sharing is liberating to some degree. It may not necessarily fix the problem. But it importantly invites the other person into that same space. And when you're willing to be vulnerable and authentic, it's a beautiful space to sit in. And I see it regularly. These are conversations that I have almost daily. And I have a lot more of these conversations with men. On Monday, uh, Wednesday, I rang my chairman who was in Sydney and I was back in Melbourne. 
and I talk to him about two, one physical and one relationship issue that I'm currently trying to deal with. I didn't have to, but I chose to because I need my chairman and my mentor know that there's a bit of stress in my life. Sharing that with him made me feel a little bit better about that challenge, but also sharing that with him gave him insight into what I was dealing with personally, and that empowered him to then say, right, what supports do we need to wrap around you so you can work your way through that? That's really powerful. And that's where these opportunities and these conversations can take us. And I would encourage you, talk to your mates. Tell them what's going on. Share with them the challenges or the struggles that you're feeling. Because what you're doing is you're empowering them and giving them the opportunity to show up and to show you what they really think of you. And if people choose to judge you differently, and it's not a, neg- it's, it's a negative response or a negative reaction, well, you have a much better understanding of where the, really, the relationship sits. Just make a different decision and move in a different way. It's okay. Um, you spoke before about you know, that this is your life's purpose yep. now, you know, that you, you honestly believe that this is you know, what you're, you're here to do now. Yep. How important do you think having a, a sense of what your life's purpose is? Oh, would, if I didn't have, if I, if I wasn't able to identify and then realize what my purpose, purpose was, then my life would really be purposeless. I'm a purpose, passion person. Mm-hmm. I, it's important to me to know what is my role here? What, why am I here? What is the opportunity? What can I do? It's easy to sit there and say it's someone else's job, but I can't do that because that's not in line with my values. I'm someone, and I'm far from perfect, Will, but I lived a life trying to meet the expectations that I had of myself because of the fact that I'm a man. I lived a life trying to meet the expectations of other people, and I've also lived a life feeling the expectations of society. I've grown up in a world where men are meant to be unemotional, strong, stoic, resilient, tough, hardworking, reliable, trustworthy, all of that stuff. They're important characteristics and qualities. But there's no book written by, written by an author published in a particular year that says a man or a male or a boy can't be all of those things, as well as soft, loving, empathetic, nurturing, caring, compassionate, have the ability to listen, have the ability to ask for help, have the ability to offer help, have the ability to show physical and emotional connection, and have the ability to cry. I cried with my wife and three kids two days ago at the dinner table. I'm not afraid to do that. Because that's important for me when I'm going through challenges to be emotionally connected. Denying ourselves that ability can increase the emotional stress that we're under. And the other thing is that my 12-year-old son, it's important that I mirror the behaviour that I want him to retain. I want my boy, like my twin daughters, to feel and believe that it is perfectly normal for a boy or a girl to cry, to be hurting, to be in pain, to ask for help and to talk. Because if I can enhance my son's ability to stay emotionally connected, at some point in his journey in life, life will sit him on his bum. I want him to cry. I want him to feel it. I want him to ask for help. I want him to put his hand up. And I want him to behave in the way that he's created. You talked about the question you ask when you're speaking to people about, you know, put your hand up, uh, you know. And so your son's at at that age where you've gone from the put your hand up if it's okay to go to mum or dad to kiss it better mm. to an age where even if at home, you know, your leadership you know, would be very influential, but you must see that the outside influences start to, 
yeah, the society, the influences of the broader society start to send those messages yep. to young men about what they are meant to be and how they are meant to behave. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. The only thing I have control over is home. And it's not really about control. I spoke to my son. Every time I do a presentation, I'll speak to him that night. I spoke about you today. He goes, again? (laughs) He goes, what did you talk about? I said, I talked about Fortnite. He plays Fortnite. He plays it too much. I'll walk in, get off it. Come back 20 minutes later, get off it. I'm in a game, Dad, and he's got an iPad going with videos. He's talking FaceTime with his mate, and he's playing a game with headphones on. Third time I'll come in. If he's not off, I'll rip it out out of the socket, right? He loses his shit. The headphones come off, his shoulders tense, his fists clench, and he starts walking like he's been on a horse with John Wayne for about three minutes. But why I share that with audiences is I don't laugh or criticise him. I just let it play out because what I'm trying to do, and I'm a flawed parent, please, make a lot of mistakes, but I'm consciously trying to create a space and an environment at home where our son can express all of his emotions. My natural thing is to laugh at it because it's quite funny when he's really pissed off and he's prancing around. But after about two or three minutes, I notice that the shoulders drop, the fists are released, he calms down, and he'll go, right what are we going to do? So in that simple illustration, I'm just allowing my son to have the space to feel and express whatever it is, pissed off, angry, frustrated, really annoyed. No judgment, no criticism. I'm just holding the space with him, allowing him to feel, to think, and communicate. And then what I invariably say is, right what are we going to do? Oh, do you want to get outside, kick the footy or shoot some basketball? Yeah, let's go. The other thing that I do, and these are things that I think we all have the opportunity of doing with ourselves and our kids. I proactively talk to him about emotions. And I did again earlier this week about crying. He cried because I cried. I've got some uh, health issues that I'm trying to manage at the moment. And I just spoke honestly because it was important for me just to talk to my kids about pardon me, what I'm, what I'm going through, because I want to be honest with them, but also to give them the opportunity to ask me any questions that they wanted to ask. And the moment I got upset, my, my young fella got really upset. And, and, and we didn't say anything. And my wife got upset because he was upset because I was upset. Chain of command, my daughters end up, they were putting shit on me because they didn't want to cry, but I could see that they were really emotional. That was their response. Anyway, I didn't say anything. And then yesterday I was talking to my son. I say, mate, how did you feel when we had that conversation? He goes, oh, I was a bit nervous. I got upset. I said, how did you feel about crying? He goes, it's okay, Dad. I said, do you feel embarrassed about it? Nope. I said, is it helpful for you? Yep. Is it normal? Absolutely. I proactively and very deliberately have those conversations with my son in particular regularly because my obligation and responsibility is, in my opinion, to give my son, along with my girls, and I'll get to the girls shortly, a home environment that empowers him and encourages him to stay emotionally connected. Why is that important? By the end of the day, we've lost six men because they've been conditioned to disconnect emotionally. I want my boy to have all of his emotions and to think that that's normal. Why, do I do, why don't I do that as much with our girls? I've never done that with our girls because I don't think I have to. Because we live in a world and a society that accepts and respects girls and women for being emotional. That's what girls do. I'm asking all girls and women to keep doing it and do more of it. Lead your influential men into those spaces and environments to empower them to reconnect emotionally. Because when we're connected emotionally, we have an ability to think, to feel and communicate what's bothering us. When we don't have that emotional connection, we do what I did. We don't know how to. 
or we think that it's weak to do. We need to empower men in particular and boys in an environment and a world that acknowledges, accepts, celebrates and supports them for being emotional creatures because that's how we're born. It's amazing, you know, even in my lifetime, the way that, you know, I mean, emotional, particularly when it came comes to women, was used as, a, as an insult almost. You know, like you, you can't have a woman in charge of this. They're too emotional. You know, it was part of the language of how we spoke about things. And really, I mean, the funny thing is that men were still relying on emotions, just it would be anger or fear, you know, these sort of, you hate, you know, these sort of emotions. They're still emotions. Mm -hmm. They're just, you know, they were very, those strong ones, uh, those seemingly strong ones, the ones that were considered to be, you know. Manly. Yeah, the manly emotions. Um, Do you feel like that is still a stigma that is attached to, you know, emotions? hundred percent. Absolutely. Again, we lose six men every day on average to suicide. Why? Because they've been conditioned to disconnect emotionally. I'll ask you a couple of questions. Yeah. Have you ever had anything like this ever said to you in your journey? It's not about responsibility or blame for people that have said it to you. Don't be weak. Don't be soft. Don't be a sook. Don't be a girl. Don't be a pussy. Stop crying. Man up. Toughen up. Get up and get on with it. Yeah, of course. How did they? How did? How did that? Something like that make you feel? I mean, you know what the funny? Here's what I'm going to say to you, and is that I am amazed at how much of that because I'm a person I'm you know I'm not in a footy team or working down a, a coal mine or anything like that I'm in the arts mm. you know what I mean I'm surrounded mm. by people who talk about their emotions all the time and I probably do talk about emotions and emotional things and you know work with a whole bunch of people with a whole bunch of different stories and yet so many of those still those things are still ingrained Mm-hmm. in me on a level that it, it's taken me to this stage of my life to realize how much the sort of man up or get on with it or that your you know, your, your job is to just keep going to work every day or to keep you know putting bringing you know food putting food on the table or yeah you know, that these messages even when i part of me was like i am not responding to this i don't believe that i live a life that is completely different to that and yet my brain the entire time was training itself to still go yeah but you're going to live by these messages regardless of that fact yeah so i think that's subconscious messaging so it's it's in there the challenge is to consciously think about whether or not that's appropriate for me or not and the reason why i asked you that question and 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 i'm really glad that that's the way that you answered it because that's not an answer that i've had before When I ask those questions to male and female audiences, the responses are things like shit, small, I made the other person feel uncomfortable, I was wrong for behaving in this manner, Um, I'm not worthy, I'm not deserving. The response is negative. And this is why I believe messaging, messaging to ourselves and to other people is really important. I'm yet to have a person in 15 years put their hand up when I've asked those questions to say I felt supported, seen, understood, respected, valued, loved, cared for. It's a negative feeling and response associated with those things that we've seen. Why do I believe fundamentally that's important? Because we either choose to subconsciously regurgitate what has been force-fed to us and we hand it down to the next generation. It's not serving us because we lose eight people a day. It's, uh, this the notion of masculinity and being a man is fundamentally flawed in my opinion. We need to rewrite a new definition that empowers men to be all things they already are as well as emotionally connected and expressive. Because we're born that way, but because of gender, around the age of 8, 9 or 10, we're told to disconnect emotionally because that's not how a man behaves. That's bullshit. So as a father, 
and a parent, do I regurgitate that message? And if I do, what I'm really doing is I'm narrowing my son and my girl's ability to be emotionally connected. So when shit hits the fan, they don't know how to respond. All I'm trying to do is challenge people, what messages are we sending ourselves? And why is it acceptable to continue to, to feed down to the next generation? What has been fed to us? And it really comes back to, are you trying to live your life based on your expectations and what's important to you? Or is it a life that you're trying to meet the expectations of other people in society? And if it's the latter, you'll never meet it. You'll never achieve it because it'll never be good enough. And what happens then is you see yourself as a failure. I live my life now based on what I want to do and the person that I am. Whether you, Michael, or anyone else that I know or don't know wants to judge me differently because I'm not afraid to be open and honest, emotionally connected and expressive as a male, that's your choice. But this is who I am. And this is important to me because now I'm investing into the things that I value, the behaviors that are important to me, and I've learned to accept that this is my life. I've got one shot at it. So I'm going to do it the way that I want to do that. And, and behaving and acting in that way, what's really nice about it is that that's now giving other men and influential people in my life, young and old, permission to behave in the same way. And I think we've got to think about the narrative that we live by. What's the first word we say most often when we cry in front of another person? Sorry? For what? We're saying sorry for being an emotionally expressive human being. We have nothing to be sorry about. That might be hard for people to hear, but we have no reason. There is no plausible explanation to me that we should be, be saying sorry to another person because we're hurting, we're in pain. The ability and the skill to express ourselves emotionally when we're in distress is really important and really valuable. And if nothing else, I hope listeners think about if that happens in their life, please don't say sorry because you have nothing to be sorry about. If someone's just lost a job, if someone's just lost a friend, parents have separated, my relationship's gone to shit, my kid's just been diagnosed with a life-threatening condition, we have every right to feel that hurt and that pain and then be able to express that apologizing, in my opinion, says more about the other person. I love being in that space because it's important to me, but it's important to the people that I care about. And if someone gets emotional, I'll share a quick story with you, Will. I had to deliver a eulogy to the funeral of a 21-year-old boy that I've known since he was five in 2017 in October. Went and did the funeral, uh, did the eulogy, went back to the wake, and I was there for six or seven hours, and I was approached by five men from the ages of 19 through the age of... Um, 65, during the course of the time I was there. And each one of these men did one of two things. Come from behind, gently grab my jumper, or softly touch my elbow. They did that because they didn't want people to see them coming up and talking to me. I'm I've never met them, assuming they knew my story and knew what I was about. And the story that I, I want to share with you about why this is so bloody important was the story that I, I spent 90 minutes with a 19-year-old boy. Came up, grabbed my attention, turned around, g'day, can I have a chat? No problems, where do you want? I'm happy to chat here. He goes, no, I want to talk in that room. His immediate response suggested to me that he'd already picked out the room that he wanted to talk in. He wasn't comfortable talking in an open space because of fear. So out of respect, we went in there. He went in first. And the moment I closed the door, this kid never met me before, doesn't know me. I don't know his name. And I wish I did. 
because he's had a profound impact on me. He burst out crying uncontrollably for 10 minutes, shaking, very emotional, lots of tears. I just stood there. I stood in the space because this is the work that I do. I'm prepared to sit in that uncomfortableness and allow someone to feel and think in that moment because it's not about me. It's about them. The courage this young man showed at that point to show vulnerability and raw emotion to another male stranger was incredible. It took me about 10 minutes to calm him down. We sat down, said, mate, take your time, whatever you need, not going anywhere. This is okay. Very careful with the language that I use. And we we eventually got him to, we, we sat down and I said to him, I said, mate, what's up? What's the matter? He goes, I'm in pain. I'm hurting. I said, okay. Help me understand that. Two years earlier, this boy at the age of 17 lost his dad to cancer. So he went from a son and a brother to the man of the house. He's 17. He's starting to change physiologically, biologically. He's living in a world that has an expectation because he's a male. He's growing into a young adult, all of those type of things. And I said, okay, who do you live with? And he goes, I live with my mum, my sister, and my grandmother. I said, okay, have you ever talked to mum two years after his dad passed? He goes, no. Why? Because she's under enough stress. You want the definition of stress. I mean, courage, there's courage. For two years, he consciously chose not to tell his mum because he didn't want to burden her. What about your sister? She's a year younger, so she's 18 by this stage. I said, have you talked to her? He goes, no, why? I said, because she thinks I'm Superman. I go, what's that mean? Bulletproof. I'm a superhero to her. I said, what about your grandmother? He goes, no, she's too old. If I told her this, this would kill her. Two years, this young boy, anger, hurt, pain, frustration, loss, fear, I'm scared, I've lost my dad. How does a 17-year-old boy navigate his way through that without the support network or the environment that allows him to talk about it? So I said, so I've got this right. You've never told anyone about this? He goes, no. I said, why are you telling me? And he looked me, looked at me and goes, because I know you won't judge me. A stranger. I said, have you talked to anyone else? Your other mates, other influential men? No. Why haven't you told them? Because they'll see that I'm weak. And if they think that I'm weak, they'll lose respect for me. I share that story because I think that is a very real story that plays out every day in a wonderful country like Australia for a lot of men and some women. That the fear of being judged and criticised and losing respect is preventing men who are in pain and who are hurting today from asking for help. Because protecting the respect that they have and the friendships that they have and minimising the potential for being judged or seen as weak is overriding their ability to prioritise their health and their well-being. And that, again, is another reason why I believe we leave so many men every day in Australia. Wow. Um, man, I, I, I'm, by the way, I thank you so much for having this conversation with me. I, there was a couple of things you said there that I really uh, want to circle back on. One is which really just got me when you were saying it, which was, because I cry a lot. Good. And so, yes. Have you but, got kids? No, no kids. Well, can, can, can I just, just, just on that? On. Yeah. Can I encourage you as another man to keep doing it? Now, I'm getting a bit emotional about this right now. And the reason why I'm encouraging men like you for keeping to, uh, encouraging you to keep doing that is because you'll give other men permission to behave in the same manner. People want to be able to do this. Men need to do this. And one of the great ways that we can empower ourselves to be able to do it is to have men like you behaving it. But what I will say, and this is what really got me when you said it, you were talking about, you know, what's the one word we say most often. I can 
literally named two examples in the last week where I've cried in front of somebody and all I've said to them is sorry. All I've said to them is over and over while I was having, you know, this, you know, quite emotional moment. The, you know, the word that I would keep yeah, coming back to was apologizing to them for what I was going through. So what, you know, the, yeah, the very thing that you were saying that, that we apologize. I don't, I, and it just got me when you said it because I'm like, because there's part of me, there's part of my brain is like, well, you know, I'm in touch with my emotions. I'm crying, you know, but at the same time, I'm repeating that exact word that you're saying. Hmm. Sorry. And, and go on. And, and, and I, look, I appreciate your honesty. I really do. Um, I'd, I'd again, I'd encourage you. Like, what message do we send ourselves? What message are we really sending ourselves? And we're all guilty of saying sorry. I've done it. I refuse to do it now because, in my opinion, I've got nothing to be sorry about. And in your situation, perhaps a different word you could swap out sorry with is thank you. Just thank you for being there for me. Thank you for allowing me to be in this space and standing in this space with me while I'm in a vulnerable moment. I would really encourage you to think about your narrative and, and that word. You, 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 Michael, myself, and everyone out in the community in this country needs to stop saying sorry. Human beings are complex, but we are also emotional creatures. Denying ourselves the ability to feel and to think and to express when we're hurting, we're in pain, we're feeling vulnerable, we're feeling overwhelmed is a really important asset and strategy when we need to be able to express if we're in any of that those situations and we're feeling that. It's not about saying sorry anymore. It's about giving yourself and anybody else permission to think, to feel and express whatever the fuck it is that we're th feeling at that moment. Stop saying sorry. I love that, by the way. That's a, I, I am a big believer in the power of, you know, having a replacement word. Uh, one, we had a guest on the podcast, Carly Finlay, who's a disability advocate amongst a whole bunch of other things mm -hmm. she does. And yeah, we were having a great conversation around the nature of uh, ableist language and how easily we use, and I think it connects with some of this, particularly the mental health space where we so easily say things like crazy or mad or whatever. And she said, well, why don't you just try saying bananas instead? Mm -hmm. You know, that's a, it's a fun word anyway. And instead of just lazily using those words, you know, why don't you say that? And I've started using it and I've noticed every time I say it, it, it actually, I'm like, oh, this is great. I'm, I'm feeling more positive about this. I don't feel like I'm using this you know, word that would disenfranchise people or stop people who are you know, having a mental health issue from being able to, you know, it's not diminishing their space and their world. Um, and the idea of replacing sorry with thank you is very powerful to me. I think that's a really, you're not telling me don't say sorry. You're telling me next time you want to say sorry, say thank you mm. and i i love that that's very a great piece of advice I'm and i i look that. forward to next time that happens yeah like being able to you go no 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 and it will be a mindset change as well yeah. i'm a big believer that words can be powerful in those in those moments one 100 and and that resonates with me greatly will because i've consciously and very deliberately changed the language that i use for two reasons one again what messages am i saying to myself I don't use the, the phrase um, suffer. I don't use it. I'm saying it now, but I refuse to say the word and the phrase, I suffer from mental illness because that keeps me anchored in the negativity in the experience. I've replaced that with I manage well-being. I'm in control. They're my choices and that's empowering. 
Um, and I've also very deliberately changed the language that I use in my role with Treble M40. I don't comment on players' performances because I only see a small window of their life. I don't know that their parents may have separated. They're coming out of contract. They've got a long-term injury. Relationships gone south with their partner. Alcohol, drug, gambling issues. So I have consciously made a decision not to comment on those things because I have no idea what's going on. So my messaging, without insight, needs to be either it, it can either be very destructive and make the situation worse for a particular individual, or I can stay away from it and just comment and call the game a footy without making it personal. So that's really interesting to me, and it was actually something I was going to ask you about anyway because. Uh, it's it's funny. Like some, I'll I'll share something, and again, this is uh, often people will ask me about what it's like to work at Triple M. There are people from uh, other aspects of my world who have an idea of what Triple M is. That's uh, yeah. In some, some sometimes is actually very accurate, but often is is not either. They have a cliched idea of you know the blokiness mm. uh, that Triple M can be. And look, there is an aspect of that that is part of it, but I, it, I don't think it's all encompassing. And the thing that I so, more often say to them is like, well, it would be more so if I, yeah, often they'll say to me, how can you work in an environment like that? And I would say to them, well, firstly, I don't think it is what you believe it is for a start. But secondly, it would be more like that if I were not there. Mm. You know, the fact that I am there and that my voice is able to at least present the ideas that I have in the way that I would like to present those ideas means that that voice is being represented. So how do you choose amongst fitting in and, you know, and doing your job and and being in that world, but also being true to your own values through that journey? I think that's a great question. The way to answer it is I turn up and I'm just me. If I got a directive to be something else, it's not going to happen. I won't do it because it's not in line with who I am. So I'm not going to walk in there and try to be overly funny because I don't think I'm overly funny, but that's not in line with who I am. I won't think you're undervaluing yourself a little. I think you're you're definitely funny. Uh, Maybe at times, (laughs) but in in my role and my capacity as a broadcaster... My job primarily is to call football, and I love it because what I articulate is what unfolds on the football field. Anderson got it out of the middle, goes long to half forward, Tommy Boyd takes a scream, a bulldog's on a roll, goal. I love that because that, 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 that what comes out of my mouth is really determined by what I've just seen, and all I've got to do is try and interpret what I've seen and then articulate it the way that it's gone through my filter. So I, I, I really love that and, and I allow my natural personality and passion for the game to come out. But if there's a particular topic and we're talking about a, a, a player, I won't come into that discussion if I don't have any insight because I'm so mindful of if I say something that I have no understanding of or the weighting of what I'm about to say and whether or not that could be a positive or a negative influence on that per- person, I won't say it. Because I work in an industry where I have an obligation to use language which is empowering, supportive, empathetic, compassionate. That needs to extend to the role that I have with Triple M Footy. So it's more about being in line with the person that I am and the values that I hold and making sure that I'm true to that in whatever I do. It's... uh you never know what someone else is going through and everybody else is always going through something. Correct. You know, there's no one in the world who's not going through something. Correct. And 
it, it, okay, look, we have to finish. I, I wish I could talk to you all day. I honestly have so many questions and so many things I want to talk to you about. But um, we have some standard ones that the, the podcast yep. normally ends with. So um, I, I, people would be disappointed if we didn't okay, get to those. So go. I'm going to ask those. Uh, okay, what do you think happens when you die? Do you have a, like, is that something that you've ever thought about? Uh, no, I haven't. I hope there's something else, but I've got no idea until I get there. Uh, we've spoken oh, a actually, little Actually, okay. what do I hope when I die? Yeah. I'm finally inducted into the AFL Hall of Fame. <laughs> Let's hope it doesn't wait to happen when you die, mate. Let's hope it happens in your lifetime. I think that would be. I would hope so. Um, uh, what would you like people to remember of you, though? Like when, when you know, when, if people speak of you, and you don't have to be dead for this, by the way. Like you know, but if if people say things, you know, about you when you're not there, what would you hope that was? He cared, and he changed my life. That would be beautiful. Uh, how do you check yourself when you're not going well? I have an internal checklist that allows me to regulate on a daily basis. I don't drink alcohol 410 days because it impacts sleep. I prioritise sleep. I exercise a lot. eat a predominantly plant-based diet. And I talk to the key people in my life when things are good and when things aren't good. And that works for me. Um, do you think that uh, people have a misconception about you? Potentially. What, but would, what would it be, do you think? You don't need to know the answer to that question, uh, but I ask everybody. I think in a football sense, people would have thought, and rightly so, that I was a moody prick. But what they didn't know was what I was living with privately. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I, I just will ask one more and then we'll uh, yeah, finish up. But um, if you had a time machine uh, and you could go back to any moment in your life yeah. um, and have a second go at it, would you take it? 100%. And is there one that comes to mind? That you're willing to share with us? Yeah, yeah. It would be um, it would be the 26th of July, 1993, where I had a nervous breakdown in my car on the way home after a training session and um, sat outside my house with my fiancée, now my wife, for an hour and a half because I was shit scared of showing her what was really going on. And if I had my time again, I would have gone in there and said, I don't know what the hell's going on. Something is. I'm really scared. I need some help. Let's go and get it. Uh, tell us about uh, where people can find information about Pucker Up. Tell us about where they can watch the documentary. Yep. Uh, yeah, we'll put the plugs in at the start as well, but I'd like to put them at the end as well. So, no, Thank you. Um, Pucker Up, P-U-K-A-U-P.com is the website. We have Facebook. We have Instagram. We have Twitter. People would like to doc uh, watch the documentary. That's also on our Facebook page. But if you are travelling on Virgin domestically or inbound Virgin over the, la the remaining few days of June... It's available, but I'd go to the Facebook page. That's probably the best place. And if people want to connect, you know, the thing I'd say about this, Will, is we have a growing Facebook community, over 13,000 13, people. And what I ask or encourage people, if you would like to belong to a community of like-minded people who are going through challenges where you feel respected and understood, just like our page, you don't have to actively do anything. But we've invested. We invest considerable effort every day into creating a um, creating a community that is safe and supportive, and giving people information and content and education so they can ultimately take control of their life and their well being. And the other place they can find us is we have the Pucker Up podcast, and every episode is talking to a specialist about a tool or a strategy 
which someone can learn a bit more about and then make a decision, I like that, I'm going to put that in my toolbox. We're just help, trying to help people develop their own emotional toolbox. Mate, this has been an absolute uh, pleasure. Thank you so much for coming to do this. I, I could not appreciate it more, and it, it's been great to get to know you. Will, it's been an absolute delight. Really thank you for the opportunity and the chat. I loved it. 